Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. COVID-19 pandemic, we've all relied on the arts. From binging shows on Netflix to rediscovering music from our younger years, the arts have inspired us and helped to sustain us through this incredibly difficult time. But the pandemic has also put enormous pressure on so many artists and communities, especially those in the live scene, depriving them of the audience that allows them to make a living. Australia's arts and cultural scene is full of incredibly talented musicians, painters, dancers, sculptors, camera operators, stage managers, the list goes on. But what mark will the pandemic leave? Will it leave a long-term scar or is there an opportunity for the industry and government to come together to ensure the sector is allowed to flourish for the decades ahead? Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm part I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. I am delighted to be bringing you the Policy Forum Pod today on my own in the absence of Sharon Bessel, who's taking a much-deserved break. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. We're part of the Crawford School of Public Policy. The Crawford School is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school, and you can check out our degree programs and short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Now, we are again recording remotely, and we're trying our best to get the best sound quality, but there's always a likelihood of unusual sounds and noises from all sorts of different avenues. I'm nowhere near the chickens today, but I know that there are other noises and animals in the vicinity. So let's see what we can come up with, and we do beg your indulgence for this. For today's conversation on the arts, I'm delighted to be joined by two fabulous voices in this area. The first is uh, Kim Cunio. Kim's a familiar voice to listeners of the pod. He has appeared as both a guest and as a guest host before. He's the Associate Professor at the Australian National University and he's head of the ANU School of Music. He's an activist composer who's interested in old and new musics and the role of the intercultural music in making sense of our larger world. He's a scholar, a composer, a performer, and he's the recipient of the ABC Golden Manuscript Award for his work on traditional music. His compositions have been played internationally, including performances at the White House, United Nations, and festivals in a number of countries. It is wonderful to have you with us today, Kim. Welcome. Thank you, Anna Greta. It's lovely to be a part of this. And beside Kim is Kate Fielding. Kate's the Chief Executive Officer at A New Approach, an Australian arts and culture think tank that brings together decision makers and industry leaders. 
Prior to this role, Kate was chair of the Goldfields Esperance Development Commission in Kalgoorlie and a member of the board of the Australian Council for the Arts. She's been the chair of Regional Arts Australia and of Country Arts WA and was named a 40 under 40 WA business leader in 2017. Welcome, Kate. It's great to have you with us too. Thank you so much. I am pleased to be joining you from Ngunnawal country where there is so much pollen and you can probably hear my voice today is a little croaky. So apologies in advance. You won't have chickens in the background, but you might have a slightly croaky voice from me. Look, it's it's actually quite important for us to reference climate change and health, which is one of my long-term interests. And so we're certainly in a very interesting season here in Ngunnawal country. And we have, of course, paid our respects to leaders past, present and emerging. Now, I'd like to start by taking the temperature from both of you about how the arts and cultural sector have coped throughout the pandemic. Um, I wonder which one of you would like to start on giving us the overview of the last two years, an extraordinary time in our arts and culture scene. Kim Cuneo? Look, I'm happy to start, but I'm also very interested to see what, what Kate has to say. I'd like to start by talking about my sector, which is, of course, higher education arts. And I'll give you a couple of general things, and I hope later we can get into more detail. But essentially, we're seeing an incredible point of doubt from young people as to whether this actually exists as a career. And I, I say that not lightly, but if you're 18, 17, or 21, you're saying, well, for a substantial part of my career as a training musician or a training artist, there is essentially no way to recoup this investment of time and money that has been made. It's a scary time in many ways for performers particularly because, as we know, you might have gigs and you might not have gigs. I can tell you being married to a a full-time artist that I've seen, you know, essentially almost no work in the last two years. So there's anecdotal evidence, but there's also the evidence of the amount of people who are retraining, often the most substantial professional artists we've got in the country, are realising that this is the time, the line in the sand where they say, I need to actually do something else. So it comes down to me to, to a few things. One is that we probably need the arts more than we've ever needed it. And I think in the introduction, we've already talked about the fact that, you know, so many of us have actually consumed more artistic content than we ever have before because we're sitting around at home. But at the same time, the monetization for artists, particularly freelance artists, has been very, very dire. And notwithstanding a number of good government initiatives and various governments, but at the same time, we have to say that something's not quite right in the state of Denmark. Kim, that's a really important place to start. Kate, I wonder how that marries up with your experience. Yeah, thank you. It is a really important point there about employment. It's definitely uh, arts and culture has been one of the sectors that's been most hard hit in the employment space. We know that there's been really, you know, quite devastating impacts across all different parts of different industries, but certainly arts and culture has been one of those which has been most disproportionately affected by the events of the last two years. That said, there are really varied experiences across the country. And I think it's quite important to keep that front of mind when we talk about what the impact has been across Australia, that while those international borders and internal borders um, being closed has disrupted many of the activities and, and the tours that would um, be generating income and generating opportunity, there's also, for some parts of the country, um, been a really interesting focus on some key points, the, the idea of local, the idea of celebrating local, 
the idea of distributed events. Um, we saw last year some of the really early big festivals that were able to happen in some of the states that had had less impact from COVID, where they ran distributed small events across cities or across towns. And while there's been very devastating impacts, there's also been this upswell of opportunity and people taking a different approach to how they might be solving these problems. That, of course, that type of innovation is very exciting, but it is also very exhausting. So front of mind for me is is those, I guess, two parts that there's been some devastating impacts, there's been some wonderful impacts, and all of that together is a huge load. Absolutely. And I think you were going to see a lot of discussion about this as we head towards the end of this year. If we're reflecting on the long-term impacts, how likely do you think it will be that the long-term impacts that we see, or that there are long-term impacts as a result of the last year or the last two years of changes to that work environment in the arts and cultural sector? Look, I think... Go ahead, Kim. I just wanted to to actually jump in and say, Kate, I think you you made such a great answer as well to say that things aren't the same everywhere and even people's experiences change dramatically from month to month. And I think this has been such an interesting thing to notice that the life of an artist is essentially undefined and unregretted. What you've asked is for us to really have a crystal ball. It's something that's almost unimaginable. I'm going to pass back to you, Kate, now. I think there's also been, as and we, we hear a lot about it, there's been a real acceleration of some of the trends that were already there. And the most obvious one is, of course, digital. And we really are, I think, just at the start of realising the potential of what that digital opportunity could mean and what that, what that means for access, what that means for participation, what that means for new voices, what that means for some form of sustainability. But that's in transition at the moment. And I think that transition is fantastic in terms of the way that that allows some new voices, um, particularly some younger voices, into our cultural space and into our cultural landscape. But it is, again, a huge shift, a big change that I think we're, we're just at the start of. So I think there's a long way to go in this space in how this unfolds. And of course, there's a long way to go in terms of how the pandemic unfolds. Oh, absolutely. So we're, we're hearing a, a picture at the moment from both of you that the the change in work environment is significant. It's heterogeneous. We see tremendous geographical variation. And I know I have a friend who's a circus performer who moved from Victoria to Queensland and seems to have enjoyed some good work, at least in recent time. I think we all can agree that the arts have an intrinsic value, uh, but it also connects with so many other elements of our life. And I think this is an opportunity and a tremendously important time for us all to be reflecting on the role that the arts sector has in our life. Confucius is allegedly quoted as saying, if one should desire to know whether a kingdom is well governed, if its morals are good or bad, the quality of its music will furnish the answer. And this evokes, of course, the idea that art doesn't just matter for itself, but it's also an important reflection of society or, or even governance. Kim, you, you describe yourself as an activist composer. It's a great label. Could, could you tell us a little bit about your work and how it connects with the social issues and the different policy areas and the role of the arts in these areas? Well, Anna Greta, thanks for that question. And I wanted to say that it's not really just me, but really the whole school of music is now becoming increasingly an activist school, one that sees that we have a role to play in the great debates that rather than just being musicians who might play, and that's absolutely fine, and being 
for want of a better term, people who entertain others, that we have a right and actually a responsibility to to make a statement about what we believe in. And so it is something that I've been thinking about for many years. And it started for me actually when I was a music student because I I couldn't see that that sort of a career was really formalized in this country. We had people doing things and of course we've had bands like Midnight Oil who've done it well. We have the folk tradition of which there's been a, a lot of interesting things. And then we'd even have classical composers who might actually write things that are very, very political but somehow we didn't get it. And one example I'd like to give is you know Beethoven writing the Eroica and so he's actually thinking about this incredible disillusionment when Napoleon, who, you know, essentially the liberal elite thought was the, you know, a saving grace and an opportunity for people to find a new way of dealing with, you know, authority and governance and going beyond, you know, essentially the landed gentry. And then the realization that Beethoven had when Napoleon was just another dictator and he dedicated this incredible symphony and then tore up the dedication. So this has been going on a lot longer than than my work, but I have had a sense that for the last 10 or 15 years that I have a role to bear witness to this world. It's a Quaker term that we don't all really know, that there were things in the world that aren't quite working as well as they could. It's not to say that we're blaming one side or the other side in particular, but the role of the artist essentially is to be the canary in the coal mine, and we must sing that statement, you know, whether it's through composition, whether it's through the visual arts, whether it's through writing, whatever it is, that I feel that artists do have that role to play. It's not to say that we have to do it through a sense of heaviness all the time. As we know, the role of satire is incredible in our country. And so that's been a big thing for me. Actually, I've been watching uh, you know, COP26 very, very closely in recent times because I wrote a symphony earlier this year, which was the first movement was based on transcriptions and a recording of CO2 and methane leaving the Antarctic ice cores, which are drilled by the British Antarctic Survey. And those same ice cores have played a really important, pivotal role for the people who've been attending that recent conference in Glasgow. There's been a really significant art installation where people can see and hear those sounds actually occurring in real time. So this is what I think the arts is. It's a chance for us to wake up to who we are on this planet in this time and to say if there are things we want done sometimes the arts are really important because as we know in example for climate change the scientists have won the debate years ago maybe decades ago but for some reason things haven't quite followed into the policy setting and this is where artists have a very very important role to play the scientists might connect to our brain into our rational side and it's the arts that help us to understand it from from our heart Kate, a new approach has done a bunch of work on why the arts matter for education, the economy and for international relations. As a cardiologist and given that we're in a pandemic, I'm particularly interested in your work on the impact that they have on health and well-being. Can you tell us a little bit about what role you see the arts playing in improving health outcomes and what we might need to do to get there? I sure can, but I am going to circle back for a moment to your question about the role that arts and culture plays, I guess, more more broadly in our governance. One of the pieces of work that we've been doing over the last couple of years is talking to a cohort that we've called Middle Australia. So these are folks who are undecided or swing voters who all live in outer suburban or regional remote locations. And we've done two rounds of this. We've done a middle-aged group and a young group. And one of the things that came through so strongly in those focus groups was the idea that arts and culture is part of what makes our country an inclusive and a free and an expressive place. 
And so when we asked questions about what would a country be like if it didn't have arts and culture, there was a lot of answers that were to do with, you know, it would be grey, it would be dull, everything would be the same. But also there was really a sense that it would be oppressive and robotic. Someone said you may as well live on Mars. It's such an alien thing, the idea that you wouldn't have arts and culture as part of your life, of your society, of your nation. So I think there's, as well as some, I guess, you know, those those fairly, the things that we're about to talk about now in terms of those impacts with health and well-being, there's kind of a sense of belonging and a sense of aspiration for what we are as a society that comes through when we talk to that particular cohort about what arts and culture means for them and for their communities. And so these may not be people who we would necessarily think of immediately as as arts and cultural people, so out of suburban, regional, remote, swing voters, but they were absolutely clear that arts and culture is for them, for their community, for their families, and that it is, I guess, symbolic of what they want for their, for their nation, for the, the health of their nation. So we've gone from health of nation through to uh, to perhaps um, health of community and individual. So I'll, I'll pick up there on your question around health, well-being, arts and culture. So one of the things that is so wonderful about health is that you can measure things. And so <laughs> what we uh, have done is look at a whole range of different studies that look at the impact of arts and culture on health and well-being, um, including mental health, and as well as there being a whole, whole bunch of great things that I'll talk about in the moment that we can see that impacts on health. There's also such good examples where, you know, they've been able to take a swab inside people's mouths and see what happens to the levels of cortisol after you listen to music. And it's, it's no surprise, I think, to anyone here that you can see the positive impact that those experiences have on people in a physical sense as well as an a emotional and mental sense. So I'll... I'll just grab one of my favourite studies that's been done actually in Australia. So in the 2016, Australian researchers from UWA produced the first dose-response-style study of arts and mental health, and they found that two-hour doses of participation in creative activities per week could measurably enhance mental well-being in the general population. And I have spent a fair bit of time in WA, so I'm pretty stoked that it was a WA crew who did this study. But I think it's really fascinating to think about that in relation to, you know, all of us would probably be able to reel off the 30 minutes of physical activity. This is a study that tells us if we want to improve our mental health, what kind of participation what, what level of participation should we be looking at in doing something creative every week? I'm going to quote that. I'm going to start to prescribe it to two hours of creative time per week. Uh, I often talk to people about physical activity, but I also know in my life there's the, the thing that has got me through the last two years is a combination of physical activity and the arts, particularly music. That's an extraordinary study and well, well, well worth reflecting on. I think at this point we'll take a brief break and when we come back we're going to talk about some more ways in which policy might play a role in Australian artistic and cultural life. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Kate Fielding and Kim Cuneo talking about arts and cultural policy in Australia, particularly in wake of the coronavirus pandemic that's affected our country over the last two years. Kate, I'd love to start with you talking about the parliamentary inquiry into cultural and creative industries and institutions that recently released a report on the arts in the wake of the pandemic. One of the key recommendations was the development of a national cultural plan. Is this something that you've welcomed? Could you tell us a bit about it? Thank you. Look, in an answer, yes, this is something we've welcomed, uh, both the report and that specific recommendation around the development of a national cultural plan. In fact, that uh, has been one of the things that we've been calling for over the last couple of years. We have looked at the examples of other national plans that exist, say for agriculture, for innovation, for sport, and we think that for arts and culture where it is really a an effort of the three levels of government, of industry, of philanthropy, and then the public who are actually the public are the biggest investors through their consumption in arts and culture, we really think that there's a, an opportunity here to have a national plan to make sure that those settings across the three levels of government are working together to get really good benefit for Australians right across the country. And so what I think is quite fascinating actually about that parliamentary inquiry was its terms of reference were quite broad and I actually find them quite inspiring in terms of what they say about um, the position of arts and culture in Australia at the moment. So this inquiry was looking at the indirect and direct economic benefits and employment opportunities, but it was also front and centre looking at the non-economic benefits, so the things that enhance community and social well-being and promote Australia's national identity. There was lines there about innovation, digital environment, regional and remote and of course, COVID. You can't can't do anything. I think at this point, without talking about COVID, but also they were looking at mechanisms for ensuring cooperation uh, between those different layers of government. So this is a really, I guess, this is an inquiry that is telling us that arts and culture is absolutely part of Australia in the 21st century, that there are benefits, there are diverse benefits, and we want to make sure that the people in this country have opportunities to be part of this, to enjoy those benefits, and to do that well. So as well as welcoming those specific recommendations, I particularly welcomed, or we particularly welcomed, the fact that it was a bipartisan report. So we've got a 
an agreement on the role of arts and culture. We've got an agreement, bipartisan support for the idea of a national cultural plan. It's a really exciting development. It sounds fantastic. What are your favourite key initiatives that might come from a, a national plan like that? So I obviously am very uh, excited about the ways that it might support access right across the country. Having lived in regional Australia for most of my life, I'm particularly keen for there to be great access and great stories coming from regional and remote Australia and all people across the country um, as well as world having opportunities to experience some of those amazing stories. I think also that there is a, we know that there's, as we talked about earlier, that there's really a very significant change happening in digital. And I think there is an opportunity for Australia to really supercharge this space and that means that we would both increase the engagement in Australia but also increase Australia's ability to connect to the global environment. For me, the other thing that I think would be really inspiring is if this has a focus on both creators and participants and audiences and communities. So it takes a full look at what arts and culture means in the lives of people rather than a kind of narrow focus on, you know, either the creator side or an audience side. It's taking a, a much a rich and connected and engaged approach to all the different parts of this I think would be a very good outcome. I'm still struck by the descriptions that you gave earlier in the first half of our conversation about the role that the arts plays in the health of our community. I'm beginning to see it as one of the glues that might stick us together and to help our health and well-being, particularly as we're recovering from this extraordinary time. It would be amazing to see deliberate investment to facilitate that. Kim, you're part of a group of deans and directors of the creative arts, um, and I understand that as a group you may have taken a snapshot looking at the role and the place of the creative arts in higher education. I wonder if that's a good place to take the conversation after Kate's review of the, the opportunities here in the policy sense. Look, I'd be delighted to. I also want to concur with Kate because I think something very interesting is happening in terms of government right now, and it's that historically we really saw the arts, well government saw the arts primarily as companies and so there were companies that did things and you could fund companies for three or five years and they were really easy to follow and then people worked in those companies and it was very easy to see but what we're moving towards now is I think a greater appreciation that the majority of artists in this country are portfolio workers. In other words, they might do five or six different things in the course of their career. So they might be actually making an arts project, they might be working on someone else's arts project, they might be working in a bakery, they might be doing being a teacher part of the time. And it's this sort of notion of artists as being really glues in the ecosystem of Australia that I think is very, very interesting. And I'm delighted to see what Kate has talked about, but also I have a feeling that we'll find out what value for money the arts are through mm. through this process, that a small investment yields a fantastic return. And that's mm. one of the things that I often say about music. You know, we're in part of the Australian National University, but it's like a dollar spent in music is the equivalent of 10 or $20 spent in other areas because musicians just get the jobs done. So, <laughs> so now back to this, uh, you know, uh, we have a peak body which is essentially for, for music, also for the visual arts, and for another other disciplines as well. It's the deans and directors of creative arts that you've mentioned, Anna Greta. And uh, 
we're in the process of just finishing off a big report called Creative Arts in Higher Education Snapshot. And we wanted to do that to really look at what's been happening in COVID. But there's more than COVID because you might remember that there was a big announcement by the federal government in June 2020 that the fee structures for undergraduate education were overhauled to direct students towards the programs that government believed were more likely to get them a job. And you might also remember, and I think people who are studying right now would know it's a lived experience, there was a fee hike of 113% in the humanities. And there was a, a media report that the cost of arts was set to soar. Now, the creative arts didn't do as badly as we thought they would, they would be done. The first few days, actually, they weren't even mentioned, which says something to us all. But right now, the creative arts are in what's called band two. There's a band one, which is really cheap because uh, essentially there's a, an arbitrary sum which is calculated for the, the average cost. It's 3950 in band one. Band two is 7950 So we're sort of lumped in with things like psychology, professional pathways, surveying, science, allied health, which is in a sense, not as bad as it could be, although it was still a, you know, a substantial increase in the cost to study an arts degree of about 13%. So that's, that's something that we're still thinking about. But what we found beyond that is that it's been part of a, a general trend for less people to be studying the performing arts and the creative arts in universities. And that's due to a number of things. It's been increasingly clear in the last 20 years that a burden that the government bore and happily bore you know in the 70s and 80s and up to the mid 90s has really been taken on by the universities now the average music degree is significantly subsidized by its university i can't tell you how much but i can tell you across the board there isn't a single music program that is not subsidized by the university in other words people who are going into those big lecture halls full of lots of people some of that money is being sent off to an the most incredible thing to happen that our society still allows. You can be rich, you can be poor, but if you're good enough, you can come to the ANU, come to the School of Music and have a free weekly lesson with one of the best teachers in the country. It's an astonishing thing that we're still able to do. But that cost is really being borne by the ANU and all the other providers. And what's happened in the last 10 years, and it's been exacerbated by COVID, is that level of subsidy has had to fall dramatically. So we're having a really a substantial withdrawal of university support for the creative arts as we speak. And I think in the next five years, we'll find a leaner, meaner and much less visionary sector if we're not careful. That's, um, that's quite a sobering picture. How can we change the policy engagement, I guess, particularly from, from a federal government perspective? How do you think we can see the government engagement with the sector change? What sort of investment do you think is needed and what sort of arguments support that investment? Anna Greta, that's a really fantastic question. I wanted to say that this is not necessarily a thing that's relating to the coalition or Labor, although we could say as a general rule, these cuts are a little bit harder from the coalition, but it really applies to both political parties. What I would say, and I'm sure this is shared by many of my colleagues, is that a little bit of investment yields an immense result. So it's a time to think about what investing in young artists can do. Because if you invest properly in a young artist and you give them the skills, after three to five, maybe seven years at the most, they're actually self-sustaining people. And they're willing to work for an astonishingly low amount to make this art. And it's not to say that we shouldn't pay artists properly, but there are Australia Council studies looking at the average wage of you know what we would call professional artists. And it is substantially below the median income. It tells us that this investment from government will yield 
guaranteed incredible results for the country, for the creative development of the country, for the creative scholarship, and also the people who do arts, we're finding increasingly, are people who also study another area. For example, at the ANU, about 30% of our students are double degree students now, and this is being seen in more and more of the universities. So it's not like that you're an artist and you're not something else. We have people who are studying art, and your discipline, undergrad in medicine at the moment, art and mathematics, and it's a very inspiring thing to see that some of these, I guess we'd say they're old culture war descriptions of what an artist might be, they really are dissolving away. And I'd really call government to think about what a modest investment could really yield in 20 to 30 years. And I think this is the way to think. We're not thinking about next year or the year after. We're thinking about what our society will be in 20 to 30 years. Absolutely. And it reminds me again of the conversations that you and I have had previously, Kim, and I've had across uh, so many areas when I'm thinking about how the future might look as the Human Futures Fellow, of the importance of these intersectoral conversations and the intersectoral skills and the cross-disciplinary discussions. And the politics of this is interesting. Kate, we have an election coming up uh, probably sometime next year, and whilst campaigns are rarely fought over the arts and cultural policy, government decision-making is often responsive to public opinion. You've already talked about the research that these issues may matter more to voters than has usually been acknowledged, particularly for younger people. But in light of that research, how do you think that the sector, arts and culture, consumers and policymakers might be able to work together to ensure that these issues remain in the public consciousness and perhaps even become a more significant election issue? So we know that Australians from every walk of life participate in and benefit from arts, culture and creativity. And from the work that we've done with those swing voters or those undecided voters, we know that they believe that government has a role to play in arts and culture and particularly they really value the opportunity. They, they think that it's an important part of Australia that we're able to tell and share and experience the stories of people who live here as well as share that with the world. So why I'm really excited about this bipartisan report that's just been tabled is it gives us a platform to say, hey, we know that these are the things that we agree on. We know that we recognise the benefits. We know that across the political spectrum, we recognise there are benefits from having a rich artistic and cultural life in this country. We also know from this report, this bipartisan report, that we're not updating our policy settings to serve Australia in the 21st century. So for me, that's where our focus needs to be. And that's a focus, honestly, that extends beyond one, one election or another because there really is work that happens at a federal level, at a state and territory level, and indeed at a local government level to make that access possible, to make that environment, that rich cultural environment possible. So these are issues that aren't really tied to one level of government or one particular election cycle. For me, the focus has to be that longer-term tale because the rich cultural life that we enjoy today is built um, on that investment that has happened over the previous decades. We inherit the benefits of that previous investment and I think um, we need to keep investing to make sure we can enjoy things but also other people can into the future. 
That long-term view is so important, isn't it? And we're talking about particularly uh, skills that develop over time and that require a good amount of time and investment, as Kim's described, particularly in the higher education sector. And so investing in that now, it's looking towards that future horizon. I could listen to the two of you talking about this for a long time, and I'm aware that these issues need to be talked about much more often in our public discourse. We have a common question that we ask people at the end of the podcast, though, and I would like that you both perhaps to reflect on the one piece of advice that you'd like to offer to policymakers in the arts and culture sector, particularly at this time. What's the one piece of investment or change that you'd like to see in place now? My piece of advice would be take a deep breath. It's been a massive period of change in this space. Massive change means massive opportunity to look at resetting our policies to really serve Australia now and into the future. That's a beautiful thing. My piece of advice to anyone from any any level of government who is listening is please be a little bit fearless because the artists will be so grateful. Anything you can do will change the lives of ordinary Australians. One thing that I find really inspiring about arts workers in Australia is they do come from all walks of life and they can be from metropolitan and regional areas alike. So we have a sense that when you invest money or you write a new arts policy or you put out a budget statement that relates to the arts, you're actually helping communities from the ground up have the guts and have the vision to do it and we'll be there with you. Two fantastic pieces of advice to conclude a wonderful conversation with Kate Fielding and Kim Cuneo. Thank you so much to the two of you for joining us today on Policy Forum. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And Kim, it's been so wonderful to talk with you today as well. Same here. I'm just giving an ad. We'll be getting Kate to speak at the School of Music next year, undoubtedly. (laughs) Fantastic. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Let us promote it. We'll promote it on the pod. Listeners, that was such an important conversation. I'm deeply struck by Kim Cuneo's uh, statement at the beginning that we've probably never needed the arts more than we need them at the moment as we recover from our bushfires, our hailstorms, our flooding, and of course the coronavirus pandemic and the psychological impact that that has had across our entire community. The arts is part of the glue that helps us to recover from this extraordinarily challenging time. And investment in this will return dividends, which are extraordinary for generations to come. So thank you so much for joining us for today's conversation. We love hearing from you and we can be reached out to through Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, Apps Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. We have a Facebook group and if you type Policy Forum pod into the search bar of Facebook. You can find us and we'd love you to join in. So we'd love you to subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you pod with. We will be back again next week and I'm looking forward to hosting again with my regular co-host Sharon Bessel. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye from me, Anna Greta Hunter. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.